Tonight, if you turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, we're actually going to pick up in verse 39, but I want to set again the stage moving backwards just a little bit. And if you remember the context of this passage of Scripture, King Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful person in the entire world at the time. It's very clear from history, you know, we know so much about the Babylonian Empire. Um, they were very, very prolific builders. They were prolific uh, authors of tablets and writings. They, we have a, actually one of the gates of Babylon is in the British National Museum. So we have a tremendous amount of historical artifacts uh, with regard to the Babylonian culture. Um, we have gigantic murals and reliefs of the Babylonian Empire. And so uh, we know who they were. And going from there, it gets better still with the next successive empires that have ruled the world. Uh, we, we have tremendous archaeological historical evidence of the Medo-Persian Empire, of the Grecian Empire, certainly of the Roman Empire, on into this very day. And so really Babylon would have been the kingdom that we would have had the most trouble with if we were trying to, from a historical standpoint, say, did these people ever exist? There is not a historian on the face of the earth that will deny that Babylon existed. They will not deny that King Nebuchadnezzar existed. These are historically accurate human beings that existed at that time. And so as we study this passage, and because as I shared with you, uh, one of the greatest keys to, to unwinding the book of Revelation is the book of Daniel. It uh, becomes very important here in chapter 2, and we start to see exactly how important uh, really is the interpretation of this dream unfolds for us tonight. And so much so, as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, there have been massive attacks on the book of Daniel that the book of Daniel wasn't even written, it wasn't even ancient. There are some that have, that have gone so far as to say it was written perhaps in the 1400s. Uh, there are those that believe it was written by somebody other than Daniel and was written uh, well after the time that the captivity had ended and they were back in, in the promised land. And so there's been an attack on the book of Daniel, and the principal reason for that attack is the accuracy of what's coming next. It is so ridiculously accurate and describes to a T in succession the, the next world empires that will come on the scene. Uh, even though the information is, is broad, it's still so specific that there's no denying uh, that it was truthful. And so because it's truthful and because the author uh, claimed to have written it uh, nearly half of a millennia, uh, actually a little more than half of a millennia before uh, a vast majority of the people who would receive it would actually be able to read Aramaic. Um, they just believe there's just no way this could have possibly been authored by the prophet Daniel. And so as we study tonight, I pray that you get excited about the prophetic word of God because there are few things in Scripture that can get you as fired up as the prophetic word of God, if you're reading it for what it says and believing it for what God has already spoken, and you realize that some of what is going to be laid out before us tonight is still yet future. Hasn't happened yet. But because of the certainty with which all of the rest of the kingdoms have existed, and for the certainty of the fact that they're predicted to fall, we also know that the last world kingdom... Uh, the last one that's in existence and is in existence right now will also 
uh, see an end, and it will be taken over. And that kingdom that takes over the one that currently exists is the kingdom you want to be a part of. That will be that final kingdom. And so God is good. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word and for the truth of it. And Lord, pray that you would just take uh, my mind right now and put aside the things that of the day and, Lord, the troubles that I've had physically today, the things that, Lord, the enemy would want to just remind me of and pop into my head. I pray that you would work now through your word to instruct us as your kids. Lord, you need to speak tonight. Uh, that's always the case, but even more so tonight. Lord, we just need you to talk to us. We bless you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 36, and you remember it said, this is the dream. So the dream's already been spoken. Picks up in verse 31. O king, you were watching, behold a great image. And that image is this gigantic image, this this beast, if you will, uh, that's standing before the king. The king is the only one at that time before Daniel says what it was. The king's the only one who knew what it was. Daniel tells him what it was. This would have been a very short book if Daniel were wrong. And so we know that because it's uncontested and because the king allows him to give the interpretation, we know that he saw the dream correctly. And so verse 36, this is the dream. And now we'll tell the king the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, notice this, are the king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, your power, your strength, and your glory. And whatever the children of men, wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over all of them. And then he says, the big clincher, you are the head of gold. And so the head of gold is King Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, kings and kingdoms were associated together. Uh, if you were the king, you were, in essence, if you were the Caesar of Rome, then you were associated with the, the kingdom itself. You couldn't separate the king in the kingdom. And so we know because there was a direct statement, you're the head of gold, you are the kingdom of gold, it's Babylon, and at that time, and we know this to be factually correct, Babylon ruled what we would call the known world at the time. There were certainly other inhabitants, but they were the one world-ruling kingdom at the time. And so now we find ourselves in verse 39. But after you, and remember this is now the interpretation. So the dream's been spoken. The first part of the interpretation has been given. It sets the stage in any sense. The easiest way for you to understand biblical interpretation insofar as we, we want to interpret Scripture correctly, which we do, is that the first time something is used in an interpretive way, it sets the standard for what follows. And so king and kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar's the head of gold, so we're, we're told that the kingdom of gold, the head of it, Nebuchadnezzar, is the first kingdom. Now it goes on. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Very important that you underline the word inferior. Because each one of these kingdoms, though they will grow in size and grow in scope and grow in essence in power, um, they will decrease in the amount of time 
that they rule the world. And so to some degree, one can say that each one of the successive kingdoms will be absolutely inferior, though larger. And so he says, the next kingdom will be inferior to yours, and then another, and a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And a fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, and inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. And so you can see that each successive kingdom, in essence, destroys the one previous to it. It becomes very clear from this passage of Scripture. And whereas you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, and yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. And as the toes and feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And so we we begin to get some of the details filled in around specifically uh, the kingdom that's being described here. And as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in these days, the kings of God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and that kingdom shall not be left to another people. It shall break into pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So it's very obvious that there's going to be a single world kingdom that ultimately will crush all of the kingdoms previous to it, and that kingdom will last eternally. goes on, verse 45, Inasmuch as you saw the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, in other words, here's, here's a stone that comes from someplace other than the human work of human hands, and of course all the previous kingdoms, the kingdom of gold, the kingdom of silver, the kingdom of bronze, the kingdom of iron, and the kingdom of partially iron and partially clay were all the manufacture of men. And they were all designed by man. They were all put together by men. And in essence, the strength of those was actually the, the men, if you will, who put them together along with the things of this earth. And so it says, that last kingdom will stand forever. And inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, notice this, that the final kingdom is the one that destroys the rest of the kingdoms. Now think about this for a second, because it will destroy, break into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, and the great God has made known to the king What will come to pass after this, the dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. And so Daniel, in essence, pronounces a prophetic worldview that will take us all the way through until a time that is still yet future in its completion. And describes these kingdoms that are associated with these various Uh, elements that are found here on earth. And so the head of gold, we've already been told, represents Babylon. And because the king was associated with the kingdom, it represents King Nebuchadnezzar himself. This dual concept is very important to remember as you interpret biblical prophecy. Uh, It establishes what comes after it. And so when we get to the book of Revelation, which will be written, uh, in, in essence, it's a vision that is the words of Jesus spoken to the Apostle John in a cave on the island of Patmos. 
So as these things begin to unfold, we already have had God speak to many of the the component parts of what John will see. And so it becomes rather like the Rosetta Stone when it was found, uh, a way for us to understand these Near Eastern ancient languages. And so the same is true with the prophetic view of Scripture. You're also going to notice that as you look at this duality, there's a decreasing specific gravity or weight of these elements as you look at them. Gold being the heaviest and silver being next and bronze being after that, iron after that. Obviously, clay uh, doesn't even qualify. It's so inferior to to the rest of those. And so what you have here is a very top-heavy statue. And it kind of gives us a picture of how governments were established at that time and how they continued into this day. And so these descending orders of specific gravity and weight to each one of those things, all of you know that if you had a a little ball of gold about that big and put it in your hands, you would be very, very, very wealthy. Uh, It would be worth tens of thousands, probably close to $100,000 if you had just a a block of gold that would fit in your hands clasped together. If you had silver, it's lighter, it's also less valuable. If you have bronze, it's going to be worth a little bit at the scrapyard. If you have iron, it's worth zip. Amen? So you can kind of see how each one of these things was more value at the top, if you will. And so each of these things is in decreasing order of magnitude of the leadership of the headship. So in King Nebuchadnezzar's case... He was the most powerful world leader that has ever existed. He himself had more power. And so these will decrease in that order. So the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, he's listed as the king of kings in this particular uh, prophetic view. The silver chest, uh, because Media Persia was known as the kingdom of silver, uh, it was limited in essence in its power. And in fact, when you look at that particular group of or that particular style of government, if you will, it became very, 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 uh, in, in essence, equivalent to what we would call an oligarchy. It had ruling nobles. And so you went from one person with tremendous power to a group of people with tremendous power. If you go on to Greece, Greece was a military dictatorship for all intents and purposes. The military ruled Greece. And so you went from one person to a group of very powerful nobles to the military basically controlled the Grecian government. Well, by the time you get to Rome, you have the beginnings of what would become democracy. Uh, in essence, ancient Rome, when you, when you look at it from that uh, standpoint, was imperialistic, which is a type of democracy with a headship, and it had a senate and all of those things, but the people weren't quite involved in it yet. And yet, by the time you get to the iron mixed with clay, all of the rest of the peoples on the earth, then what you actually have is you have full-blown democracy. And you have the things that allow for us to look at our world today and go, okay, we had uh, a, a king that in essence ruled the entire known world at the time. We then had a group of nobles that ruled the entire world known at that time. We then followed up with a militaristic government if you will, controlled by the military itself that ruled the world. We then went on to an imperialistic government where there was a figurehead, but in essence there was a structure beneath him that actually ruled the world at at that time until you get to the final kingdom that's mentioned here, 
which is, is a kingdom that's kind of a mix of imperialism, you can kind of see this, and something very soft. Well, what's very soft is actually humankind. We're not very strong. Matter of fact, it doesn't take too much to wipe us out. And so uh, these world kingdoms in that order. So this dream reveals, in essence, the course of world history. In a, in a very short period of time, you, you can see these things. And so it begins to unfold before us in that way. The strength of Rome was not moral or religious strength. Uh, it was the strength of that inner unity uh, that was the, the, the ruling class, if you will, the imperial order. And they commanded the military to go and do their uh, bidding. The strength of Greece was its military. If you've ever read the book, The 300, a uh, story of 300 Greeks, Greek soldiers who fought off Media Persia, the entire Persian army, uh, at the Battle of Thermopylae. And so you can see exactly how these world kingdoms in history, we can look at them and go, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Uh, by the time we get to the book of Revelation, we get a real clear picture of what this iron and clay mixture is because uh, Revelation chapter 6 actually gives us a picture of it. So these world empires in successive order, it's also interesting to note that they began with a, a relatively short duration because Babylon only existed really in a powerful sense for a little over 60 years, from 605 to about 539 B.C. So they were very short. They would get longer. They would have greater breadth, but they would eventually fall apart. And so they were really, in essence... Um, not as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar was, though it was for a much longer time. The, the silver chest in this particular uh, example was Media Persia, and so that's Persian, where you see Iran currently, and part of uh, what is now Iraq, and also Syria, and part of Turkey. Uh, that area of the world at one point was was ruled from modern-day Iran. And if you were travel to Iran today, you can actually go see the tomb of King Cyrus, who is brought forth in your Bible in the book of Isaiah. And we get a very clear picture of exactly what that kingdom was like. You can actually travel through the Persian gardens of King Cyrus. They are still in existence today. And so very, very clearly... Uh, the media Persians, and, and interestingly enough, if you look at the kingdom that was there, most everything was decorated with silver. Not gold, but silver. Babylon, everything decorated with gold. Media Persia, everything decorated with silver. And to this day, if you find a, a very authentic Iranian Persian costume, you're going to find silver all over it. That still exists. The third, the belly, the thighs uh, of bronze. Uh, if you know anything about the Bronze Age, and specifically the Bronze Empire, um, the reason that Greece was, was as powerful as they were is they had a material that they used, which was bronze, for their weapons, which was stronger than what everybody else had. And so consequently, when they took their bronze swords to somebody else's wooden staff, guess who won? Uh, that empire lasted from about 330 B.C. to about 63 B.C. and then finally coming to, to Rome. And the Roman Empire, lasting the longest of, of them all, really started in about 63 A.D. and went all the way to the mid-1400s. And so the Roman Empire was in control of a vast majority of the earth uh, for almost 1,500 years. And so a very, very, very long period of time 
Uh, each empire conquered more land. It became broadly more powerful. It had more land mass, more people than the one that preceded it. But ultimately, what it's really saying is all the plans of man in the face of a mighty God come to nothing. And, and from that day to this, there has been no ruling world empire. And yet, your Bible says, as we just read, there's going to be another ruling world empire. In essence, that Roman empire, partially mixed with clay and iron, is going to make a comeback. And we can look at that and we can kind of see what's happening, because the old revived, if you will, and that's the easiest way to look at it, revived Roman empire, uh, includes all of what we would call modern-day Europe. And, of course, we're going to get to some of the different parts here in just a minute. So these two arms on this image, the Medes, the Persians, the belly, the Greek empire, uh, after the death of that kingdom, uh, Egypt and Syria actually became uh, the two thighs, and, and they were part of world history for a while. The two legs, the Roman empire, uh, forever ruled the world. And so there's, interestingly enough, no hint given of any type of timing of this final world empire. There's no real date set, if you will. We know when some of these kingdoms came and went, and it says there will be a final one that's going to be mixed with that last world empire, which is Rome, and all of the peoples of the earth, the the clay. Um, But it doesn't tell us anything about that empire other than the fact it's going to be made up of ten toes. And so one of the things that happens by the time we get to the book of Revelations, we realize that there are also a kingdom that's that's described as having ten horns. And, of course, for a long period of time, we've been looking at the European Union going, wow, well, it started off, there was just a handful of them, and then it got to ten, and everybody's going, yay, it's finally here. And then it went to ten, eleven, twelve, fifteen, eighteen. Interesting thing is going on in the world right now. The EU is losing membership. People are going, don't want any part of it, not sure this Euro thing's working out, the whole Greece economic disaster, what's happening in Central Europe and the devaluation of the Euro, those types of things. So it is easy to see how at some point in time, which is still yet future for us, we could end up with a kingdom uh, that comes along, like Revelation chapter 17 says, that has ten horns, which represents those same ten toes that we find in this picture. And, and it has some form of ruling democratic government that's made up of a bunch of different countries that all came from the old Roman Empire, which is exactly what Europe is largely, and yet it's semi-democratic. And so you can easily see how very likely in, in I believe, the not-too-distant future, you're going to see the, the culmination uh, of that last ruling world empire, which is not going to be the United States of America. And here's how we know that. Uh, one of the blessings of being in a Christian nation is is that Christians are going to be uh, absent from here when the rapture happens. And so we, we might possibly see our population drop by half in the moment in a twinkling, twinkling of an eye. Um, I can tell you what's going to happen at that point in time, not very specifically, but I think China's going to be really happy. And they're going to see a giant landmass with now with half the people and nobody to to be in the military and all those kind of things. And everybody that's still here is going to be going, see, we finally got rid of all those Christians. And so now we can join up with everybody else. 
and we can have a one-world government. Just as Scripture declares in the book of Revelation, in the last days there will be a single government, a single currency, all of those things that we uh, know will ultimately happen, uh, we're not going to get to see. And so just as you saw the iron mixed with the baked clay, so the peoples will be a mixture, um, but they're, they're not going to be able to hold it all together. There's going to be a guy uh, that Daniel calls in chapter 9, the ruler who will to come, who will be to come. Um, you guys know him as the Antichrist. He's going to come on the scene in those last days, and he, he will, in essence, uh, have great political power initially. Scripture says he's going to come initially with a bow with no arrows. He's, he's not going to need to shoot anybody uh, because there's going to be massive economic problems to solve. There will be massive problems sociologically to solve. And so as he comes on the scene, he's in essence going to bring an end to those economic problems. He's going to bring an end to the things that divide people around the world. And it's interesting to me as we sit here in the here and now and we realize what's going to happen a, a bit later from now and one of the things that's being tossed around as Christians are actually the reason that the world has all the problems it does. And so God's going to solve that for them. We're all going to disappear. Just one day, we're all going to vanish, and they're going to be going, See, you know that alien flu bug that came from Venus about 12 million years ago and was in the soil out there in the desert, and somebody dug it up, and now it's infected, and, and only those stinking Christians got that flu. I don't know what happened. And they're gone. <laughs> Revelation 13 says of that beast that will come up to, to rule that final revived Roman Empire. That says there in verse 12 that he exercised all authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship at the feet of the beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And so he's going to have tremendous power. Uh, he's, he's going to carry the authority of apparently being able to defeat death. Uh, this is going to be a pretty scary guy when he comes, but he's not going to be scary in the sense of like some zombie apocalypse scary. It's going to be he's going to have unbridled power, and everybody's going to love him. Basically, the whole world's going to bow down at his feet and go, wow, you can bring all of this clay together. You can take that old strength of Europe, because isn't that what's being said right now about Europe? They're all looking back and going, well, we used to be strong, and we used to be unified, and we used to have this, and we used to have that. That's already occurring with regard to the EU, because the EU is basically beginning to, to fall apart right before our very eyes. It has tremendous financial problems, much worse than the United States has ever seen. And so they're all looking for somebody to come on the scene, going, hey, you know, we're kind of, we're a little bit squishy in spots. And isn't that true about the way the EU is governed? They just want everybody to get along. We're going to make laws and pass laws for everybody to be able to do anything they want to do. And they've already begun that process. And so it will come a time. I believe that, that actually the Antichrist will arise out of that revived Roman Empire. I believe the Antichrist is going to come, likely from Europe, uh, and, and he's going to come on the scene and pull together that ten-nation coalition, these toes uh, of this giant image, uh, because all the rest of them are gone. Rome's gone. They're not around anymore. You can go to Italy today. You know, it's crazy. Um, when, when these words were spoken, Rome was a little tiny village on the edge of the Tiber River. 
Now, that's how accurate this was. That you couldn't possibly have thought that Rome was going to become a kingdom and that it would have any type of power. Iron did not exist yet. It was nowhere on the planet when Daniel spoke these words to King Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't there. Bronze had not been invented yet. So the things that he's saying, they're going, what's bronze? What's iron? King Nebuchadnezzar would have been going, well, there's kingdoms coming after me. But can you imagine as each successive kingdom came into existence and the Medes and the Persians with all of their silver finery show up on scene and they actually are used because we know from history that King Cyrus actually did come to Babylon. He defeated, he actually got into the city of Babylon, defeated the king of Babylon, and ultimately uh, his kingdom, the, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, took over. But for, for Daniel to say that to Nebuchadnezzar, he's like, who's going to take over me? I'm the most powerful dude on earth. Okay, I'm the king. I'm the head. But these other worlds. So one by one, as the Medes and the Persians came, and then the Greeks followed them, and then Rome. Can you imagine what people were saying around the world? Oh, your prophecy is a bunch of bunk. I mean, we're Rome after all. I mean, we've been here since 63 B.C. Can you imagine it about... The, the middle of the peasant wars in Europe at about the year 1000 A.D., uh, as you're sitting there at the base of Fortress Hohen Salzburg in the Austrian Alps going, yeah, sure, you know, this Jesus guy, he's going to start a new kingdom. I mean, it's been a thousand years that Rome's been ruling the earth. Ah, but they disappeared exactly as Scripture said they would. Nobody thought they would. I guarantee you the Anglos and the Saxons who inhabited most of northern Europe believed that Rome was going to be the ruling power forever. They pushed the wogs back across Hadrian's Wall in, in Scotland. And all of a sudden you're sitting there going, wow, I guess Rome's going to last forever. Like that, Rome disappears. Almost instantaneously disappears from the world scene. Now, verse 44, and in the time of those kings, okay, very important, in the time of those kings, it's not saying any one of them specifically, but it's talking about the era which is defined with the head of gold and is culminating with the with the legs of iron, it says, in, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will establish his kingdom on earth. When did Jesus come? In the time of those kings. He came during the rule of Rome. In fact, it was a Roman proconsul. It was a Roman government. He was tried before a Roman governor. In the time of those kings, now think of this, this is half a millennium ahead of time. In the time of those kings, in the rule of a kingdom whose kingdom will be known as the rule of iron, which hadn't been invented yet, it's not on the earth yet, because he's already said, you're the head of gold, so he's saying, king and kingdom, you're defined this way. 
will establish his kingdom on earth, and it will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. That's a pretty strong statement. When Jesus came, he established at that time what we call the age of grace. People, one by one, as they profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, have been coming into that kingdom. And that kingdom from that day until this, from A.D., in essence, 32, as Jesus rises from the dead and he says, It is finished, and people now can put their faith and hope and trust in a risen Lord, from that time to today, that kingdom has been here. It has never disappeared. Christianity has never been wiped out. It's never ceased to exist. And it says that that kingdom will go on forever, not be left to another people. In other words, all of the previous kingdoms, what's happened? Babylonians, taken over by the Medes. The Medes, taken over by the Greeks. Greeks, taken over by Rome. Rome, at the time of the Roman Empire, sees Jesus come on the earth. And nobody takes over the Christians. Now, we may die. We may lose our life for our faith. But we can't be defeated because we're no longer a kingdom that's of this earth. Amen? We are of a kingdom that lasts forever and ever and ever, and of whom Jesus Christ was the firstborn. And so we're part of that kingdom. That kingdom began then. It continues till now. It's never ceased to exist it will never vanish from history. It is simply going to come to fruition. And it will crush the remnants of the previous kingdoms and put an end to them. But it will, it, but it will itself endure forever. In other words, there's going to be some war. There's going to be some battling. There's going to be things that are going to be going on. Once that final kingdom comes to its start, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be some fighting that goes on. You and I know that as spiritual warfare. Be put to an end. That is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, which he's already talked about, but not cut by human hands. You see, at this point in time, if a rock got cut out of a mountain, how did it get cut out? It got cut out by human hands. They could look at the giant statues. They could look at the walls. Of Babylon, you go out and stand on his parapet wall and go, yep, we cut all these rocks ourselves. Scripture says that there's going to be one, a rock that broke the iron. You see, Pilate thought he won. He didn't really want to put Jesus to death anyway, but he was sure getting tired of dealing with the whole Christian deal. Amen? In the process of doing that, it looked like through Christ's death, it's gone. You know, they're, they're, they're poster child. Jesus is dead. He's in a tomb. I'm going to send some guards there. We're going to make sure he doesn't come out of that tomb. A rock broke the iron. Can you imagine what Pilate... I, I, I've always wanted to know what Pilate must have thought about five days after Jesus' death. After Mary and Martha and Peter and John race to the, everybody's down at the tomb, then Jesus begins to appear to the disciples and then to 500 people at once, and that word starts making it around Judea. 
Can you imagine what was going on in the heart of Pontius Pilate? Uh, that was no itinerant preacher from Galilee. There was something different about him. That rock broke to pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. In other words, looking back on human history, Jesus took care of all of it. No world kingdom, no king will ever stand against the Lord. No weapon fashioned against us through him will prosper. That there is no one that's ultimately going to go, well, look, I finally defeated the Christians. I finally put an end to this whole Jesus thing. The rock that's mentioned here is the very thing and the very picture of the Lord Jesus that uh, Psalm 118 gives us, that Matthew 21 gives us. You remember that he was the stone, the rock that the builders rejected. The builders of all those worldly kingdoms were looking at Jesus. Can you imagine the Roman Caesar hearing about Jesus, this kind of fisherman dude from Galilee who had kind of a rabble following of a bunch of itinerant, unemployed fishermen, largely, outcasts of society, and they're wandering around the Judean foothills. I don't think Caesar Nero was sitting in his palace in Rome going, Ooh, I hope he doesn't come here. But Jesus did go there, not himself. He sent people filled with the Holy Spirit like the Apostle Paul, who ultimately ended up in Rome. And Romans began to get saved. And through that, you actually have the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church, which, by the way, is a Christian church. They may be messed up in their theology but decidedly believing that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and decidedly, absolutely, is the propitiation for sin. Jesus was that rock that's mentioned here. The prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 14 says this, And on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives on the east of Jerusalem. And at the Mount of Olives it will be split in two from the east to the west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Ultimately, Jesus himself is going to establish his kingdom again in its fullness. You and I know that as the time of the millennial reign of Christ There's a whole bunch of things that are going to happen before all of this culminates with the Lord returning to earth. But he is coming again. And if you do as many do and you try and spiritualize the book of Daniel and you try and spiritualize the book of Revelation, you try and spiritualize the book of Ezekiel and the book of Zechariah, you take all those things and say, well, they were just kind of figurative and they actually just apply to the church and you don't look at them as literal events that are yet to happen in the case of the establishment ultimately of God's eternal kingdom right here on this earth, then all of a sudden nothing really is solid. And you have to spiritualize everything. One of the things that keeps me going at times is realizing the promises of Scripture with regard to God's God's kingdom finally coming to its fruition and, and we're out of here. I love 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. 
For God has not appointed us to wrath, but unto salvation. You know, one day, if the world's going to go through all of the hellish things that the book of Revelation says, which I believe it will, God certainly is going to keep his promise to not give us the wrath that he saved us from. So these physical kingdoms that are described here in the book of Daniel should lead us to believe that the kingdoms that are talked about elsewhere in Scripture are physical kingdoms. They're real places. And I happen to believe that the Lord is actually going to come back and he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives, exactly as Zechariah says. The, the timing of that, the book of Revelation gives us. You know it as the second coming. When Jesus comes back and he says, okay, we're done sinning. It's over. I'm going to gather together all of the nations of the earth and I'm going to bring them to the valley of Megiddo. And because of what they've done to my people Israel and to the land which is my land, I'm going to bring them into judgment as the book of Joel tells us and deal with them. One of the things that helps us understand some of these principles that are, that are contained here is, is the Olivet Discourse, and that's Jesus' words himself about the very last days, the things that would happen uh, directly before he comes back, culminating with him returning to earth there in Matthew chapter 24. And, and notice that there will be a time when, it, when Scripture says that there's, there's summer going to come upon this earth. And summer in that particular passage, as Jesus says, he says, now learn the lesson from a fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. And even so, when you see all these things, that you know that this is near, it's right at the door. I tell you the truth that this generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things have happened. That means that the, the very end of this, when Israel comes back, the fig tree, the, the, the branch, begins to bud once again, which it is. They're in, the, they're in the land. You saw the news today. We believe that it was Iranian terrorists that planted the bomb on that bus that blew up all those Israeli kids on vacation in Bulgaria. Israel is saying, you can't do that to us. They're not overly happy about Iran's nuclear program anyway. Um, you, you can watch for Israel to be doing something probably tomorrow. You, you see, when you see things heat up in the Middle East, you know that that final world in that final world empire, which will ultimately come on the earth, as Daniel said, that comes out of this kind of conglomeration of the old Roman Empire and new democracies, which would be Europe itself. When you see those things begin to unfold, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, that's what Jesus said, then you know the time is near. He goes on to say in that passage, he says, Do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, that not stone will be left one on top of another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And Jesus, sitting on the Mount of Olives, then said to his disciples, come to him. And he, he says, what will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age? He, he said, well, when you see these things begin to unfold. And he goes on there in Matthew 24 and 25, and he talks about all the events of the, 
first and second half of the tribulation and and how the Jewish people would come back into the land and to expect the, the, his return. He gives the parable of the ten virgins. He gives the parable of the talents. Uh, he begins to talk about the separation of sheep and goats and all these crazy things. You see, when you begin to see what Daniel was talking about, and you realize that there's only going to be one more world empire, that's it. And that one more world empire will come after a time, that final one, when Israel has been reestablished, which it has, began in 1944. And so now here we have this, this stage that is set. He says, when you see these things begin to come, the end is near. So I get kind of excited about that. It's like the end is near. Maybe I will not have to cram my legs underneath an airline seat. I might not have to fly halfway to the other side of the earth. I, I may get to go home to be with Jesus. The deterioration of this, of this final world, if you will, and even the laws of physics point towards these things being true. Because nothing lasts forever, amen? Uh, if you've got a car, you've got a house, uh, you've got clothes, you know they don't last forever, amen? They begin to break down, they begin to wear down. And the same is true for kings and kingdoms. That's one of the reasons that we look at what's going on in our country right now. We, we ask the question, how long can this last? Because God doesn't let anything built with human hands last indefinitely. He has a time and he has a plan. He has a purpose. And when he's done, it's over. And nobody can tell him differently. Revelation 19 gives us this picture out of the mouth, uh, out of his mouth. And it's actually the, the mouth of the Lord himself. Comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter, and he treads out the winepress of his fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And on his robe and on the thigh is written his name, and is the King of kings and Lord of lords. One day the King of kings and Lord of lords is going to come and take care of that final world kingdom. The last one that man tries to assemble, which is, I believe, very deeply in the final stages of preparation for that kingdom to appear may already actually be partially assembled. Uh, it, it certainly could be assembled overnight as the, as the nations of Europe gather together and solve their economic crises and some awesome guy comes on the scene and says, hey, i got a plan to fix all this. The only problem is, is in that day, the next thing that the world's going to see is the church is going to vanish. The church isn't going to be here anymore. The world's going to be really happy about that, by the way. They're going to be going, yes. The Lord's going to come back and he's going to, he's going to fight that final battle himself. Strike down all of the nations. You see, each one of those kingdoms that were laid out there for us by Daniel have brought tremendous pain and suffering and sorrow and inequity and, and nation rises up against nation. That's why Jesus said there in the Olivet Discourse, and there will be wars and rumors of war, and nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In essence, people against people will be the order of, of the very last days, the final uh, end, if you will, uh, of world history as we know it. 
that's when the Lord himself is going to begin to deal with, with humankind. And as you look at these various world scenarios, I believe that uh, that last kingdom, once it, it's knocked down and once it's brought to, to nothing, uh, Psalm 90, verse 4, reminds us that for a thousand years are in your sight as one day just as, as uh, a watch is going out in the night. If you remember what Peter said there in Second Peter, he said, for you know, forgetting, not forgetting this one thing, dear friends, but uh, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He's saying, you know what? Uh, humans are going to come and go and human kingdoms are going to come and go and they may look like they're going to last for a long time and they might exist like the Romans did for 1,500 years. But from the Lord's perspective, He's not asleep. He's not slumbering. He's, he's coming back. And when He comes back, He's going to establish permanently His kingdom. And that kingdom, Scripture declares, will last for a thousand years. Uh, that that kingdom that that will uh, bring back, uh, in essence, it will bring back the rule of the rightful king, and that's why Revelation 19 says what it says: on his thigh is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, because he's actually the rightful deed holder to this earth and all the dumb things that we as human beings are doing right now on this earth. Jesus is going to one day fix himself, because nobody else is going to do it. Man's going to keep trying to to take over, if you will. Revelation chapter 12 says that ultimately the Lord will come and rule this earth with a, with a scepter of iron. And if you've been with us in our study in the book of Ezekiel, we're going to study the book of Zechariah in not too distant future when we finish with, with Daniel. We're going to move on to the rest of the minor prophets. Now we've already looked at the book of Isaiah. And you look at this period of time where the Lord will actually establish a thousand years on this earth. Uh, he's going to restore the spiritual conduct. He's going to restore the ethical conduct. He's going to restore social relationships in the way that they're supposed to be. He's going to take care of physical wholeness. The lion will lie down with the lamb. There's going to be all of those things that existed in the Garden of Eden. You're going to get to experience those things as you come back with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in that final world kingdom. You see, mankind says, well, China's rising. You know, Russia's still pretty powerful. I mean, it's going to be one of them that takes over after the U.S.'s demise. The world's looking at it going, there, there could be kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. Your Bible says there's only going to be one more. That's it. There isn't going to be a world ruled by China. Let me, let me prophetically speak to you. There isn't going to be a world ruled by China. There isn't going to be a world ruled by the United States. There isn't going to be one ruled by Russia. There isn't going to be one ruled by India. There isn't going to be one ruled by anybody else, because God's already spoken on the subject. He said, once Christ comes and establishes his kingdom, the next kingdom that will rule will be his kingdom. Hallelujah. So, all of that bantering back and forth right now about what's going to happen here and what's going to happen here there, you have the Lord's word on it. He's going to establish the final kingdom. The extent of that rule is given to us in Zechariah chapter 14. You see, you had a head of gold and you had a chest of silver and you had the arms of bronze and you had the thighs of iron and you got the mixture of iron and clay right now 
But it says in Zechariah 14, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord. His name will be the only name. Hallelujah. That's what's coming. That's why when people say, well, you know, I don't really like to study the the prophetic word of God because it gets me scared. If you know Jesus, you don't have a thing to be afraid of. Nothing to be afraid of because the next ruling empire is going to be the one of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, we may see the rise and fall of nations, but you're not going to see the rise and fall of another world ruler. The next world ruler, we're going to get to skip that guy because he's actually going to be the Antichrist because he's preceding the establishment of God's kingdom. We'll already be ruling in heaven. That's why Scripture says we're coming back with Jesus to fight the battle of Armageddon. We're coming back with him. So you guys need to bone up on your horsemanship. Just saying. There's going to be political change because the form of government that's never worked on this earth is actually going to work for a thousand years. It's going to be a theocracy. And the only way that could work is if the rule of God was in the hearts of everybody on this earth. Because I guarantee if there's one person on this earth who doesn't have the rule of God in their hearts, they're going to be causing problems. And I believe that that is exactly why it says at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released one last time to try and do his bidding. And whatever he accomplishes, the Lord will quench right then and there. And from there, there will be a second judgment. The great white throne judgment will occur. And all of those who are unrighteous will then be cast into the lake, lake of fire eternally. So the next world kingdom, you guys, are, if we happen to be alive, are going to go straight to the kingdom of heaven. And that kingdom of heaven isn't going to ever end. You're going to go from heaven back to earth for some more of that heavenly kingdom except here on earth. And from that time forward, the kingdom of God will be with men right here on this earth. And then the good thing is a new heaven and a new earth. Finally, here as we wrap up this chapter, verse 46, it says, And then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. Can you imagine? Now, if he did this not seeing the future like Daniel had seen, Daniel had told him the dream, he had predicted the future effectively and accurately. King Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and an incense to him. He says, man, Daniel, you're, you're it, because that was the dream. And you just told me I'm the head of gold. That means my kingdom's going to come to an end. He said, I'm not going to live. And, of course, we're going to get that here in the book of Daniel. That kingdom's going to disappear. And the king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods. And if you have any of the modern translations, you'll notice God is the God. Those are both capitalized and of gods. He's acknowledging that his gods are nothing compared to Daniel's God. He says, Your God singular is the God singular of the God's little g. In other words, our God's are not in the same ballpark as your singular God whom you say rules from heaven. Because your singular God just told me what my dream was, announced that I'm the head of gold, has told me my kingdom will not last forever and it would disappear rather quickly. 
And if the rest of these world powers would come on the scene, now imagine looking back, somebody maybe a thousand years later going, man, Medes are gone. Greeks are gone. Rome's kind of on the rise. You ever wonder why people kind of got there in, that, in, in the, the age of enlightenment, began to question whether God was real or not? Because in essence, it had been a thousand years since anything had really changed substantially. They thought, ah, maybe this God thing isn't actually working out. They look at the book of Daniel, see, look, God's not real. Nothing's happened. Can you imagine their surprise when all of a sudden the Roman Empire folds up, moves back to Italy? And if you've ever been to Italy, Italy is a pretty pathetic country, okay? I'm just telling you. Just telling you like it is. If not, some world power has some beautiful architecture, some great places to go in Italy. But when you go to Italy, you see the ruins of the Colosseum. You don't see the glory of the Colosseum. You see the destitution of the rulers that ruled Rome. And you look at it and go, man, how could this have ever ruled the world? And yet it did. That's God going, see, told you. Nobody's going to take over for God. And the revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. So obviously, King Nebuchadnezzar is saying, bingo, dead on, you got it. And then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And so Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Daniel sat in the gate of the king. In other words, there was only one person above Daniel, and that was the king himself. That's how dead on the king Nebuchadnezzar saw this. There are a couple of great presuppositions that are found in your Bible throughout from cover to cover. One is God exists. Tremendous presupposition. Because you have to answer that question or this does not mean a thing. If God doesn't exist, then all this talk about God who ruins, rules the affairs of men, who is beyond space and time, who has knowledge that nobody else has, there, there is a presupposition that there is a God. The second one, and that's really the purpose for the Bible itself, is that that God who dwells outside of space and time, who is more powerful than anyone else ever in the universe, who ultimately is the rightful deed holder to this earth, who is the creator God and all of the things that we know about him, that that God actually wants to reveal himself to man. That's the reason your Bible is in your laps. That's the reason the prophetic word of God speaks the way it does. God's speaking. He's going, I told you these things in advance. What do you need to know beyond that? That's why the book of Daniel is contested. Yahweh, God of heaven, revealed uh, himself to, to the nation Israel. And so this is uh, in, in another one of those things in Scripture that you just go, there is no way in the world that Daniel could have written these words without getting them from God. It couldn't happen. There is no way in the world that Daniel could have even known 
Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And think about it for a second. Don't you think there would have been a book of Nebuchadnezzar or a scroll or actually at that time probably a tablet or a relief written by Nebuchadnezzar refuting the words of Daniel if if it were not true? And I'm thinking it would have been protected by the Babylonians, don't you think? Probably would have been passed around as like, here's the refutation of King Nebuchadnezzar of the words of Daniel. And yet there isn't. And the world looks on and wonder and says, where'd Babylon go? It's dirt. The only thing that's left is a, is a rim of dirt walls in Babylon. Some bricks, some tablets, things that we know that Gilgamesh and all these guys that are mentioned in your Bible actually existed. But as far as the evidence of their king and their kingdom, gone. Go to Iran. Not the mighty Persian kingdom. They'd like to try and be again. Hasn't happened. Greece, same thing. You probably there probably isn't a single person in this room that hasn't seen the Parthenon or hasn't, you know, gazed upon Greek statuary or heard the words of Aristotle or Socrates. And yet where are they? They're embroiled in the deepest most pervasive financial mess on the earth. They are so far in debt that it's been estimated that every Greek on earth actually owes about $57,000. They're completely broke. So much so that all of that statuary and all the evidences of the Grecian Empire are now actually far more valuable because they're hawking them on the black market. Rome. Go get scalped by the ticket guys outside of the Colosseum. Oh, I can take you under so you can see the the Roman circus pens and the place where the gladiators went. You know, they're dead. They're gone. Your Bible says that's exactly what would happen. It is exactly what happened. And only the God who's in heaven could make that happen. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we, we truly do want to... Put our hope and trust in you. And God, we're just grateful that your word speaks the way it does. And God, we we have this sure and prophetic word from you. Lord, we know that the kingdom that's mixed with clay and with iron uh, will not stand against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And in that day, one day when you return from heaven with the shout, with the trumpet, with the voice of God, with the scroll for the deed to this earth, when you come back, Lord, your kingdom will be firmly established right here on this earth. And it will be a kingdom of peace. Lord, you're going to restore this earth to the way it was when Adam and Eve took over. And we pray that you just give us that peace to trust you. Lord, to rest in your mighty hands. Lord, to realize that even if you tarry yet a while longer, Uh, your plans will come to pass. We believe that. You've been true and faithful in all of this, Lord, to this day, and we have no reason to doubt you. And so we bless you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. Strengthen us with it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.